you are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. To the chasers of light, to the purveyors of pictures, to all of you listening around the world, this is the F11 Photography Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Deal, along with your other host, Mr. Brandon Gorey. Hey, how we doing? We're doing well. We have a, we have a rug in here now. Yeah, it's also going to be 106 today. Yes, uh, there is a video of a lady in Houston uh, who took a loaf of bread in her uh, her little uh, cast iron, and she put it in her mailbox and closed the mailbox, and 45 minutes later, she had a loaf of bread. That's how hot it is here in Texas. That's beautiful. Yes. Yeah, imagine <laughs> what you could do with eggs. Yeah, on the top of your car. Yeah, I wouldn't want to, though. Yeah, you're going to put, like, camping equipment out of business. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, I forget what, the Blackstone. The Blackstone uh, grill top is going to go out of business this summer. Yeah, yeah, it's funny. People need camping supplies more so when there's blackouts in Texas, more so than, like, when it's summertime. The shelves are, like, empty when it's a blackout. Like, go to Walmart, shelves are, like, empty. Like, car converters, electric converters. Oh, the... But camping, camping season, summer, like, nothing. So when we had the, uh, the freeze two Februarys ago and everybody's uh, electricity went out. Thankfully, I live really close to a hospital, so my electricity never goes out in those situations because uh, I'm on the emergency grid. Mm. But ever since then, the algorithm on uh, Amazon, it's always like, you need an inverter. You need, I'm like, no, I'm good. Yeah, I was in uh, Ukraine during that time, so I didn't get to experience that joy. Right on, man. Well, uh, we've got a really special episode for you today. Uh, we have a special guest here, but first we're going to talk about today's sponsor, which is Gamut. What is Gamut? It's world-class video LUTs. Uh, Gamut LUTs have been used to color grade films for brands like Toyota, Leica, Dwell, Huckberry. Over 10,000 creators trust Gamma LUTs to grade their weddings, YouTube, and commercial films. Uh, you can explore uh, LUTs uh, for creative creative LUTs as well as base LUTs, they have everything like C-Log 3, C-Log 2 for Canon, B-RAW for Blackmagic, N-Log for Nikon, S-Log for Sony, V-Log for Panasonic, and they even have D-Log for DJI. Uh, and as a stills photographer who turned YouTuber and all of a sudden found himself needing to color grade, uh, I really appreciated these gamut LUTs. And Brandon is much more of a videographer than I am, Brandon, but explain to everybody why LUTs matter. LUTs are really important because when you're shooting in a log format, you've got a lot more stops of dynamic range. And so it is really important to have a LUT and a color formula to match that uh, from your blacks to your whites. Not only that, it saves you a lot of time. It saves you a lot of headache because there is a learning curve to color grading log and not a lot of people have the time to learn it, especially with their busy schedules, running a business, taking videos, and staying on top of business. So a lookup table is a very quick, very easy way to add the proper colors, uh, complementary colors. Obviously, a lot of people know about the teal and orange sort of dynamic duo. Thank you, Michael Bay, for that. It's been a long time coming. 
Um, but let's let's all save you time, energy, and they'll end up making your project probably look better than you could make it on your own. Oh, I, I know that for a fact because I sit there all day and capture one and color grade my stills, and I'm like, yeah, I love the way that looks. And then the second you throw me in a video, I'm like, nope. I put the I put the, the, the LUD in there and I'm good to go. Uh, makes my life a lot easier. So go to gamut.io or better yet, check out the link in the description of this podcast and they're running a 15% off sale. And I mean, their creative LUTs are like $25 and their wedding LUTs are like $100. So really, it's, it's not that expensive to begin with, but uh, take advantage of our discount code. All right. In studio today, we have a special guest. Uh, she is a uh, very busy person in the photography industry, wears many different hats. She's a top five wedding photographer, a Canon explorer of light, an author, a YouTuber, an educator. Uh, she, just celebra- she just celebrated a birthday last week, and she's also a mother. That's a damn busy schedule. Welcome to the studio, Miss Vanessa Joy. Thanks so much for having me. That that's like a mouthful having to go through all that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's this podcast for you. <laughs> you got to talk a I lot. D- yeah, that's true. <laughs> I have to say, I'm already intimidated because the two of you are just like super smooth and this like low, sexy voices, and I'm like, I, mm-hmm. I don't have that. Well, as we joked in the uh, the very first uh, podcast, I have a face made for radio, so I better have a good voice. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, the first thing I want to talk about is how we met. So. I all of a sudden saw that you were in Texas. I'm like, wait, I thought she lived up in like New Jersey, New York area. And so I, I introduced myself to you and uh, uh, on Instagram and all that. And uh, now you're down here. So the, the question is, why did you come to Texas? Well, first I have to correct you, by the way, because you didn't just introduce yourself to me. And this is huge for anyone trying to network. You made yourself so useful to me. You set me up with my entire line of models here in Texas. I don't know if you know that. Uh, I mean, I've seen a lot of them, most of them. There's a couple you, there's a couple I didn't set you up with, but (laughs) there's a couple that I would have set you up with, but the models that I set you up with recommended that model to you. So I was like, cool, it all worked out anyway. And there you go. And there you go. Yeah. So I decided to move from the Northeast to Texas to escape the cold, to escape the taxes, uh, and to escape all the mean people that quite frankly, don't get enough of vitamin D up there and take it out on you. That makes sense. And you are from New Jersey, but you're not from like the Jersey Shore part of New Jersey. You're from the actual Garden State part of New Jersey, right? Yes. So I'm from the Garden State. If you want, I can put on my New Jersey accent later. I did have to like coach some of the vowels out of my my vocabulary, but... (laughs) It's cool. I'm not a big fan of the New Jersey accent. I used to live there in the 80s. And I'm like, yeah, we couldn't get out of there fast enough. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, it's so sad because it's really a great area of the country. I lived in Freehold, New Jersey, and it is smack in the middle of the state. So there are horse farms to the west, the beach to the east. I've got Philly south and New York City north. And every different season sport or activity you possibly could have. But it's super expensive. And then it's only nice for maybe three months out of the year. Yeah. My dad used to be a pilot there back when people express was based in Newark, EWR. And, uh, he gets, he got nightmares every time the Sopranos came on. Cause you'd see them driving over like the turnpike and you yes. see all the swamplands and everything. And he's <laughs> like, Oh, that was my commute to work every day. I don't miss that. No, nope, I we, know those oil tanks. <laughs> yeah. I think we lived in New Jersey for like six months and then immediately moved to New York, like, uh, near West point, that area. Mm-hmm. 
and we didn't live there very long either because my dad was a pilot getting commuted around and transferred around. But uh, but I enjoyed I enjoyed New York, New Jersey. I don't have a lot of fond memories of, but we're glad you're here. Thank you. Oh, uh, Justin to Texas. What do you like about Texans uh, and being down here in the South? What kind of surprises you about us? And then what do you miss from home? That's like a three-pointer. Well, the miss from home is really easy because Texas simply does not have good bagels. Doesn't mm. have it. No. Does not exist. No. And you you, you, nope. you would work in New York City. Right. Like that. there's some bagels there. I got the there. good stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So whenever I fly back, I'm flying back next week. I'm, you know, I go and I buy a dozen bagels. I take them back with me on the plane, carry them like a baby, and then I freeze them. So I always have New York bagels with me. Yeah, my wife grew up in El Paso, and they have, like, insane tamales. So every time I go through mm. there, I have, like, one of those uh, Yeti coolers. And I, I put, like, $200 worth of tamales in there and put them in my deep freezer. <laughs> and we're good for, like, a year, year and a half. Uh, but, yeah, I, I, I get it. So what do you what do you love about Texas? Okay, I love the heat, including this 106 degrees. Just, just for the I record. That's just, a hot take. It is. And just for the record. She has an Americano coffee that was so hot, I kept having to pass it Mm -hmm. to Brandon on the way over here because it was burning my hand through the protective covering. Yeah, it was hot for me as well. And she's drinking that here in Texas, which is is crazy. But I agree with you. I, I would take heat over cold. Personally, yes. I, I like it better because that's where the that's where good beach is, right? Well, it's also operating a camera. You can operate a camera in the heat, but the second it gets cold enough where like you can't move your fingers to control it, it forget it. I'm done. Unless you're shooting an R5 at 4K and 60 frames per second. Yeah, but that doesn't help my fingers, Kevin. My <laughs> it <fingers>. overheats. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So what do you, what surprises you about Texas? You know, I can't say much surprised me. The reason I moved here, all you know. Uh, you know, oh, I take it back. I take it back. The one thing that surprised me was the genuine hospitality of people. Uh, you know, whether you're from California and people are nice to you because they're just being fake or from the Northeast and people are nice to you because they want something from you. It surprised me how many people were nice just to be nice. Yes. However, if you're if you're listening to this pod and you, you're not used to the South, if someone says, bless your heart, that is not a good thing. That's no. actually about the worst possible thing that somebody could say to you, even though it may sound somewhat nice. That's about the biggest insult you can get in the salsa. So if you hear someone say, bless your heart, uh, it's kind of like saying up yours <laughs> in the Northeast. I mean- Sometimes it can be like a, an, aw, you're so naive type, bless your heart. That's the nice version of yeah. it. But but like, but it could also mean like, I can't believe you walked this earth and you're that stupid. Yeah. That's really what, <laughs> that's the way most people use it. So, uh, awesome. Well, I have uh, a couple of, uh, people in a photography group who have some questions that they wanted to ask you. Some of them are very softball, easy questions you've answered a million times, but there are people listening to this pod who don't know who you are. So, uh, I'm going to ask you, how did your photography journey begin and what got you into photography? My mother was a photographer. My grandmother was into photography also, and she was very much a woman powerhouse for her time. She was the first woman correspondent in the New Jersey Senate. So I feel like I get a lot of the photography and gumption from both of them. But of course, because I was a typical child, I did not like photography because my mom did it. And I was homeschooled for nine years. And then I went to public school and I'm sitting down with a guidance counselor and they're like, well, what electives do you want? 
And like a typical bless your heart, naive homeschooler, I'm like, what's an elective? <laughs> so they start rattling off like, oh, you know, cooking class and wood shop and photography. And my mom was sitting next to me. So I'm like, okay, let's, I'll make her happy today, you know? And I took photography. It was black and white photography. I fell in love with the dark room and the smell of fixer. And you couldn't get me out of that class. That's awesome. Yeah. So you, you did, uh, you did. Film photography, which answers, actually, there's a three-part question from Rebecca Perales. One was, what got you into photography? Two is, uh, did you shoot on film? We've answered that. Mm -hmm. And then part three of her question is, what got you into wedding photography? Why wedding photography? I know you do more than that now, but you cut your teeth and really made your name in wedding photography, let's be honest. I did, because that high school photography teacher that taught me black and white, was a wedding photographer on the weekends. And after I graduated, I went to a community college nearby and I was trying to cut mats. Like, you know, we have your finished piece, your print, and you're gonna perform it, you perform it. You're gonna uh, have it on display for critique and you gotta cut your mats. The mat cutter at my college was so God awful. I used to enjoy cutting mats, like I loved it. And it was so bad, it was horrible to use. Uh, this is before. It was after Columbine, but before a lot of other tragic things. And I was able to go back to my high school, knock on the back door of the photography class, hand my ex-teacher a Dunkachino and say, can I use your mat cutter? And I would do that. I would just come back. I would cut all my mats there. And then, you know, he saw what I was doing because of that and asked me to work for him. That's awesome. And then uh, now you've spun into this uh, very successful two, two decades later uh wedding photography business, which is awesome. And uh, what joy does shooting weddings give you? <laughs> Not much anymore. Like, to be honest, <laughs> I, I very much am over the, the basic bitch weddings, I call them. So I, I have an associate team that's not quite as old and crotchety as I am. And they shoot the basic bitch weddings. And not that they are. Like, honestly, every wedding that I look at, whether it's my work, someone else's work, there's always beauty in it. But for me to be interested and take joy in photographing weddings, it just needs to be something I haven't done a hundred times before. And I think that goes for any creative. Yeah. I, I only shoot a couple weddings a year through word of mouth. I don't at all advertise that I do them because I mean, I know how much investment you have to make. You are listening to the F11 photography podcast. This is a subject I want to talk about because I, I so often run into photographers in these groups. I, I'm in like Canon groups, Hasselblad groups, Fuji groups. I always like, what lens should I get to shoot wedding photography? And I'm just like, man, like that is like the least of your worries. Like seriously, like, like uh, if you take a picture of the father of the bride and the mother of the bride, are they going to punch each other? Cause you have absolutely no idea that the father of the bride is cheating on the mother of the bride. And you know, questions you sit down and ask oh, people yes. because you can literally ruin a wedding by asking two people to get in a picture together. Yeah. I'm not going to lie. I did that last week. <laughs> <laughs> and I do ask that question that, you know, are there any sensitive circumstances? And they didn't tell me that. So, you know, oh, mom and dad get together and they were perfectly amicable. So they're like, yeah, we'll get together. You can take a picture, but you know, we're not married. Right. I'm like, oh, God, PTSD from 20 years ago when I didn't know how to ask that question. Yeah. And that's exactly it is they just like a lot of people don't know. Like I always tell a photographer, if you're if you're if you're technically good enough to shoot a wedding, I can give you any lens. And within a few seconds, you should know your settings. You should know where to Preach. zoom with your feet. The gear doesn't. I mean, it does matter to a point, you know, obviously you want something with like redundant cards in case, you know, something dies or whatever, but 
it's very low on the list of things that you need to worry about for wedding mm-hmm. photography. So uh, we had uh, Doss Miller in here last week uh, for an interview and he was awesome. And uh, I, he, he, he cut his teeth in wedding photography, but I always say that wedding photographers are like Swiss army knife photographers because <laughs> yes. it's like uh, natural light photography, off camera flash, uh, being a psychiatrist, uh, being still life, keeping, keeping the yeah, still life, uh, doing lay flats. What's a lay flat? Uh-huh. I just did a video on that yesterday. Yes, I, saw that. Yeah, I, saw that. I made a mess. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm not good at lay flats. I'm not going to lie. So that's another reason why I don't shoot weddings a lot. It's just something I need to I'll work come, on. I'll come shoot your lay flats. Cause actually that's one of my favorite parts of the day. Cause okay. I don't talk to anyone. So, so for <laughs> people who are listening who don't know what a lay flat is, most of your admirers are wedding photographers and aspiring wedding photographers. So I want to spend a little bit of time on that. What is a lay flat? A lay flat is when you have some sort of ground background. Ideally, it's, you know, it can be a floor, but you are laying out the invitation, the jewelry, the shoes, some florals, and just getting like this overall essence of the entire day with all the little details in one photo. And oftentimes those could be the cover of their album or be like Mm -hmm. in the inside of the cover of their album to kind of set the tone of this is going to tell the story of the day. And this is all the stuff you need to be kind of mentally paying attention to. This is the vibe of the day. Now let's go into our wedding album. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Yeah, it's. Uh, Brandon does not shoot weddings. As a non-wedding photographer, I did not know what a lay flat was. So that's that's beautiful. It's like a mood, a preemptive mood board. board. Yeah, Yeah. I like that. It's like when we take detailed shots when we do fashion. It's like, oh, let's get a really good shot of up close to the belt. You know that kind of Mm -hmm. stuff. It's sort of like the detailed shots of this is what the bouquet looks like. These are the rings next to each other. That kind of stuff. Uh, You know, something borrowed. All that kind of stuff. Cool. All the goodies. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny you you guys just talked about like how, you know, it's not really necessarily the gear that, that makes the wedding, right? It's, it's so much more, it's, it's so much preparation before the wedding itself and, and just knowing how to work a camera, you know, second nature, which everyone should be doing in any case. But to play devil's advocate in your experience, how like, has gear helped you? Like ha- oh, yeah. has having one camera versus another uh-huh. been a game changer? Absolutely, because when it comes to weddings, and obviously a lot of other genres of photography, you don't have time to set up lights sometimes. You don't have time to even blink before something incredible happens in front of you. So I need a camera that focuses as fast as I think, which hasn't happened until the mirrorless line that Canon came out with. So the R for me. You need that. And then I need uh, lights that are wildly reliable, consistent in color, and it does not misfire, which I get so much crap for like using and supporting pro photo. Oh, they're so expensive. It's like, yeah, they are so expensive because they work every flipping time. And I need them to because you know how to look like an idiot photographer at a wedding? Your flash not firing. That's how you look like an idiot. <laughs> uh, uh, in front of like 40, yeah. 50, 100 people. Exactly. And that's the only thing they're all going to judge you on because most of them will never see your photos. Well, a lot of the people who, who talk smack about that kind of stuff, first of all, most of them aren't even wedding photographers. So like their mentality, like... Like I, I personally don't shoot enough weddings to uh, justify. I mean, I, I probably will eventually go over to Pro Photo or Bron Color. I really want Bron Color because I want. I have a UV passion project I'm doing, but I did the math and it's going to cost me about thirty seven thousand dollars to buy all the Bron Color stuff I need to do my passion project. So <laughs> I'm just going to use the sun. It's a much better uh, UV source. There you go. But a lot of people who say things on the internet don't ever have the complete context of why someone makes a decision, yes. which is why you always have to take what you hear with a grain of salt because uh, anybody can get behind a keyboard and be an asshole. 
<laughs> I have a collection of them. <laughs> yes, we'll get into that later too. Trust me. Last little bit I want to touch up on with weddings is because, and I know you you probably talk about this a lot because you're an educator, but some people listening, you know, they they don't even know where to start. Like, I want to get into wedding photography. Where should I even start? And I would imagine, being that you've been doing this for 20 years, the advice you'd give young version of yourself has probably changed and evolved over time because it's now 2023, the way we market ourselves, uh, the expectations of weddings have changed. You've got a lot of knowledge there because you've been collecting this over the years. So I think you're one of the foremost experts in the world to talk to a listener right now on this pod who's listening to just say, hey, if if you're thinking about getting into wedding photography, here are like five like things you should think about to just get started. Where do they even like figure out their head from their ass? Where do they start? (laughs) You know, the biggest mistake I see most photographers make when they, you know, get a camera, they want to be a photographer, they go out and take pictures. Then that's wrong. You need to go out and find someone to learn next to. Because that time that I spent, you know, working for my high school photography teacher, photographing weddings, it wasn't just about learning photography. It was. and But you can do that anywhere. You can do that on YouTube. You can listen to podcasts. You can go to workshops, conferences, whatever. But you will never get a chance to make mistakes on someone else's reputation again. And that's huge because you're going to make all the marketing mistakes. You're going to learn all the things that they say and the way they say them to their clients, whether it's during a meeting or, you know, during the actual shoot, all those things like you just cannot get unless you are actually mentoring with someone. It's cool. huge. So coming from the the mentor space where you learn a lot of the technical things, there's a lot of the concrete things, you you kind of have like the rhythm down, you know, it's it's there's a number of things that are like second nature that you don't have to think about. How long from there or what was your experience from there kind of developing your own, you know, your own eye, your own photographer's eye apart from maybe the technical? And I'm, I'm assuming you picked up some of some of that mentor's personality in their work as well. Yes, very much so. He was a traditional photographer. So a lot of what I do, especially when posing for those traditional family photos, it's very like a Monty Zucker, which, you know, was a famous portrait photographer and it's very much his style um so i picked all all those things up too personality wise and then you also find the things you're like i will not be doing that myself (laughs) that's that's fair now for people who are listening um i'm sure you see this all, all over the internet i see it as well a lot of people ask like how to take a good photo and they just kind of seem lost and Mm. you know they think that their gear and their equipment and the rule of thirds is going to save the day and oftentimes it's there's a there's a time period where you just develop an eye it becomes second nature you take the photo first and then you look at why you like it later how long do you like was there an aha moment in your life after the mentorship where you're just like oh my gosh like i'm taking photo like i i got it you know yeah i'll let you know okay (laughs) Humility. (laughs) (laughs) I think, well, I mean, yeah, there's, I look at it like per technique. So, you know, can I promise a certain bright and vibrant style to any client and fulfill it in a wedding? Yes, absolutely. And then I move on to the next thing where like, can I use flash in any circumstance and get the outcome that I'm seeing in my head? Yeah, but not always. Sometimes it takes a second or I want to learn something new. Um, It's always like one baby step after the other. And then, sure, yeah, I had aha moments, you know, when I was working for him for like four years, online 
kind of just started. It sounds ridiculous, but like Facebook just started. So I had this more of this influx from other people's work that I didn't have before. I mean, before you wanted to see someone else's work, it was like you go to the local PPA chapter and it was, I'm sorry, nothing but old men and their work that all looked exactly the same. So I would say my aha moments happened once I saw more work and once I started going to conferences and workshops and I thought it was awesome. And then, you know, two years later, you look back, you're like, that was not awesome. That was really bad cyanotype processing. It was a phase. <laughs> yeah. It was a learning moment. Yeah, well, hand coloring's coming back, guys. I don't know if you know that. And to your point, the the Facebook groups these days are it's it's a lot of old men still. Mm-hmm. A lot of a lot of guys spending yeah. fifty thousand dollars on the gear to take a photo of a heron on the on the <laughs> lake. But you know what? Good for them. They're living the dream. They're having a good time. We'll get into sexism later. <laughs> I have that on. Uh, I have that on the agenda today. Good. Um, I have stories. Yes, I, I've seen some of them. <laughs> Literally in your stories and Instagram. You know what? Screw it. Let's talk about it now. Okay. So, um, I was just talking to Brandon about this as we were sitting for the episode. So, photography, I would say overall, still has sexism, and I think all like you grew up in. It wasn't your dad a musician. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the only like industry I could probably say is more sexist than Mm -hmm. photography is, is probably the music industry. Uh, But, you know, there have been bright spots, Dorothy Lange, Annie Leibovitz, and there, there have always been some strong female photographers out there, but for the most part, it's still been like a a boy's, a a guy's world uh, and, and for, for years. But I will say that it is, it is starting to move in the right direction in my, from my observations. But I just, I noticed something, uh, Brandon, uh, his brother, I think came into town a couple weeks ago and there's a picture of Brandon on uh, town Lake, Ladybird Lake, uh, kayaking in his swim trunks with uh, no shirt on. Mm-hmm. No big deal. Right. No, no. It was, did, it was, did anybody slide in your DMs and tell you what what are you doing? Why are you why are you showing pictures of yourself with no shirt on? No, my mom called me handsome on Instagram. That was about it. <laughs> See, there you go. Uh, so I was uh, going through my Instagram stories, and uh, uh, you know, part of this may be being somewhat of a public figure within the photography community. But there is a so I, I'm just going to set a scenario for you if you're listening, and you you, th- you think about how uh, normal this is. Um, it's 105 out. You're on a boat on a lake, and uh, you decide to wear a two-piece bikini. Uh, scandalous. Scandalous. So you. tell us the story about your, your two-piece bikini experience. Yeah, yeah, because obviously I'd never worn one until that point. But I finally had taken a moment to hang out with a friend of mine from Austin, probably my longest friend from Austin, and it was two years and we've just never really hung out and she goes out on boats all the time she's always invited me and I finally went because I made I made a decision like I need to make time for life because I suck at making time for life and anytime I make decisions like that I like to show it on Instagram like reality and things outside just snapping pictures so I dared to post a picture of me on a boat and I happen to be wearing a bathing suit like one would on a boat uh, and I got a nasty gram from an old man that said, you know, I appreciate all the free photography advice you give us, but this is just quote unquote unprofessional to have a bikini selfie. But it looked like a pretty normal bikini you'd see somebody in on a lake. We're not talking like Miami Beach here. No, like Uh, you couldn't see my butt hanging out. I wasn't straddling anything. It was like... (laughs) normal <laughs> but but seriously if, if you're listening uh to this podcast and uh you feel the need to correct people especially people who happen to be women on what they wear just mm-hmm. unsubscribe like 
we we don't we don't need your listeners. I mean, we don't need you to being our listeners. Like you suck. So uh, <laughs> I watched some of your videos, and you know, you go into the comments, and you're like, wow. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Let's, do you have mm-hmm. like do you have like your top three or four favorite terrible comments you received? Oh, I mean, my one of my favorites was like. You need to really learn more in photography. Follow some people who know better than you and learn, learn, learn. I'm like, not for nothing. I didn't start yesterday. Yeah. And those, those people suck. I mean, and the, the thing is, is what's really going on here. So I'm sure those people uh, have a sponsorship with a major uh, you know, camera manufacturer. They've got their own YouTube channel. They have their own preset packs for Capture One. They're, they're, they're constantly ranked as one of the top people in their industry. Actually, that's not true. They're not. <laughs> I think, I think, I think just think that there's people out there who just can't accept the fact that uh, you 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 understand how to run a business. Like to me, like if I see like Vanessa Joy, it's more of a brand, not just a person. You have all these different things that you do. You have all these different uh, uh, plates that you're spinning, and and you know, a lot of a lot of photographers are really good photographers who just suck at business. Yes, and it's funny. I was just on the Pro Edu podcast recently, and they put it up on YouTube and. One of the very first comment on there, because I decided, dare I, to say that I like business more than I like photography, because it's true. I do. The comment was, oh, all these YouTubers aren't even photographers. They have no idea how to be a photographer. I'm like, and I have to comment back. I, You know, the New Jersey, you can't take the New Jersey out of the girl, right? <laughs> and it just comes out. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I've been running a wildly successful business on my own for 15 years. Like, I. How much more of a photographer can I be? <laughs> well, and it's one of the things we talked about last week with Doss when he was in here, our, our guest, is there is a threshold that you have to get to to start running photography as a business, but you don't have to be Helmut Newton. To, mm-hmm. You don't have to be at that level to start running a successful photography business. You just have to take good pictures. You don't yeah. have to be cutting edge. And some uh, that's not what people want, especially in certain industries. Like wedding photography, I'm just using that as an example. Yes, you have some creative liberties, but in general, there's a lot of staying on a train track because you have a shot list you have to stick to and there's expectations that the client has. Yes, they do hire you to a certain extent for your eye, but if you start doing some crazy avant-garde stuff where like I, I'm out of focus and I'm all like, you can't start doing a lot of shutter drag. I mean, you can do shutter drag Actually, sometimes no, on the, on it the came dance back. floor. It oh, came back. Shutter, oh, I do shutter drag a lot, but I'm doing it, you know, not for weddings. <laughs> I'll do, although I will do it on the dance floor. Uh, if I'm trying to like get that, you know, that action shot, that whole, that, that, that shot that they teach a lot of wedding photographers where you, you use the speed light and then you move the camera around yes. and make it look like you're in the moment. So I, I guess I guess there is Shutter Dragon there. Maybe that wasn't a good example, but point being is that as a wedding photographer, I mean, yes, you can do some creative things, and and I've seen some shots. There is, I think it's one of the ones you pinned. Uh, it was like in like a walkway on some stairs, and it was a dusk shot where you, you did some oh, cool yeah. off camera flash. That's one of my favorite shots I've seen. Thank you. It's awesome. Hey, this is Doss Miller, and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Speaking of off camera flash. Uh, so I've always jokingly said that people who say that they're natural light photographers are people who just say that they really don't know how to use flash. Uh, explain the importance of, of understanding flash and not just in wedding photography, just right. in general as a photographer who's trying to put notches on your belt. You know, a lot of natural light photographers don't like flash because they don't realize that you can use flash to mimic natural light. Like I think, at least in my head, oh, I don't like that flashy image look. But once you get past the 
flash has to look that way and realize that, no, I can make natural light in the middle of a black hole. That's when you realize, oh, no, flash photography is awesome because I can make golden hour in the middle of the day or I can bring a big window to photograph in front of no matter where I go and make it look like natural light. That's when your mind shit, your mindset shifts. It's funny. It's funny as you say that because, like, every time, like, I'm, I'm, I'm very much a no person until you convince me I'm a yes, and that's very true of YouTube personalities. I'm, I, I'm sure the very first time I saw one of your videos, I'm like, who's this? <laughs> you know, like I'm like that with everybody. I'm, it's, it's just a type of person. I'm like, who's this person? And then, and then, like, then I watch a video. I'm like, okay, they're good. And <laughs> and and I would say the video of yours that stood out to mind, where I was like she has a gift of teaching is you did a video and this I was probably like four years old, five years old. You were still in New Jersey at the time. You did a video. It was a, a, a overcast day and you emulated golden hour using uh, a orange, an orange uh, gel. I think it was, mm -hmm. a, I think you're actually using Godox still at the time. Maybe I don't remember. Maybe no, you're using I've, Profoto. I've, I've never no. touched oh, it was, it was, it was Profoto. Yeah. You <laughs> used, used the, the orange, the orange, little orange magnetic gel. Yeah. That's right. And you, and you emulated golden hour and they looked convincing. And, and the reason why that's important, if you're listening is it's like, let's say you book a client on such and such day and it's the only day they can work and they want, they give you their mood board and it's nothing but golden hour mm -hmm. and it's, and it's overcast. What are you going to do? Cause they've hired you to get that golden hour look and you have no golden hour. That video like effectively showed you like, this is how you do it. And as a photographer, you need to learn that stuff if you want to run a successful business. Cause they'll just be like, Oh, okay, well we can't, if, if this is the only day we can do it, then we'll just have to cancel. And then you miss out on all that money. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's fun. Once you learn how to do it and you, you're just creative doors just open and you get to play and, and do the things you want to make our clients happy, but also to make you happy too. I think I get a lot of crap for teaching flash a lot because I've refused to teach it in the technical form. I teach it in the, the baby step form. Like stop. I don't have to teach you inverse square law to turn on your flash. Yeah. And I start with turn on your flash and shoot. And then I show you why things happen later. I do have a question. Um, kind of like keying in on your response earlier about how, um, I asked you about the aha moment and you very humbly replied, like, I'll let you know, um, what, like, we all go through cycles of learning, I feel like, and I feel like, you know, that's just something that's just going to keep happening as a, as a young photographer myself. Um, what are, what are some of the recent things that you've been discovering as a photographer, like either like as yourself or with gear or technique or technical, like what's something that just in recent history for you has been, uh, new and exciting. You know, this is going to sound like it has nothing to do with photography, but it, it really does. With the influx of everybody just seeing images all the time and constantly seeing styled shoots and fake moments on Instagram and influencers and things like that, what is in the photograph matters a lot more than what, how the photograph was taken. And, you know, as a purist, maybe I was very against that. But the truth is, whether you're playing with color theory because you appropriately picked out this outfit with this backdrop or most recently for me, you buy a ton of lay flat details that you bring with you to every wedding. Now, there are sometimes it's the things in the photograph that elevate it. And then that gets you to a whole nother business level. For example, weddings, because again, that is where I make my bread and butter. I have a lay flat that I'm going to do for every single wedding. And I can do it on the floor of any given hotel and it's going to look okay. But the second I have a chasing stone 
lay flat backdrop where it's beautifully textured and I bring colored ribbon and I bring matching ring boxes and I start asking my clients to make sure there's extra flowers for me early to decorate with. Now I've not because of how I photograph it, I still photograph it the exact same way, but because of what I make the extra effort to make sure is in the photo, all those photos are elevated. And now the invitation person is recommending me because it makes their invitations look better. And the wedding planners are recommending me more because I've captured that essence of luxury in something as simple as a lay flat. So it's little, it's things that are in the photograph sometimes are the thing that elevates your photography versus the photography technique itself. And the great thing about <clears throat> the great thing about that is you don't necessarily have to bring all that. That's just a mm -hmm. that's just an, an, another like two or three emails, and suddenly you've made your process a lot more efficient, more bang for buck because you're shooting it the same way. Yeah. So that's really cool. Um, there was a question that was being asked uh, by Karen Lawler. She was asking. Uh, this is this is on the business side. I know we I know we strayed away from it, but I, I wanted to get back to it to make sure I had her question be asked, which is. What has been your most effective marketing tool? <laughs> yeah, now. You know, every time someone asks me about marketing, I sort of fear that they're expecting me to give them this pat answer. When marketing has never been a pat answer, it's always been a long game. But the most profitable and effective long game strategy is relationships. The most money I've ever made from any single referral has always been word of mouth. And yes, of course, from clients, but more from other industry professionals. The very first two jobs I ever booked, one was from a wedding DJ, one was from another wedding photographer. And then now, if I look at my books and the single people that have given me the most, most business, it's relationships I've made with wedding planners and relationships I've made with venues, especially. And that's not exclusive to wedding photography. That's any where you are in your life, relationships will always be the most profitable thing that you invest in marketing wise. So, so you're saying that if I, uh, if I just rely on uh, meta to push my Instagram <laughs> out to people, that's not gonna, that's not gonna be my most effective strategy. No, it's not going to do it. Not going to do it at all. Especially now when half, half of everyone went to threads and it's, it's almost like they shot themselves in the foot. I don't know what they're doing. Well, I, I mean, I noticed a drop in engagement. I don't take my Instagram too seriously. I mean, I, I make sure it's professional enough to where people will reach out to me. But, I, you know, it just blows my mind that people are like, oh, yeah, I just I get all my business from Instagram. I'm like, so you, you what you're saying is that you're leaving so much money on the table because that's you put all your eggs in that one basket and you rely on a company whose sole purpose is to keep people on their platform, whether that's to push your post or to push Kim Kardashian's post, guess who's there, guess whose post they're <laughs> going to push more. Uh, and, and you'll see, it's like, you'll have like, let's just say you have 10,000 followers and you put a post out and maybe it gets like 90 likes and it only got pushed out to 300 people. It's like, that means that like what 9,700 people who supposedly follow you, like meta made a decision that your post wasn't even worth showing them in the first place. That's an insane marketing strategy in my opinion. It is, and there's nothing wrong with getting jobs from Instagram. Oh, I do it. I get yeah. jobs from Instagram a lot. hundred percent, but you can't put all your eggs in someone else's basket because that's exactly what you're doing with any social media platform is you are taking your business and your, I don't know, means of getting people and you are trusting somebody else with that traffic. So it is good. Absolutely do it. Take it a little bit seriously, but don't leave it there. Make some friends. What do you make of this new threads fiasco? You know, I like that it doesn't crop my pictures. 
That's I love nice. that part. That's nice. Yeah, I, I, if they could find a way to marry the two. I mean, they tried with like the little at symbol at the top, I guess, of your profile. But I, I don't know. I'm getting some. I like that other people can reply there with their photos. And that's pretty much what I've been doing, using it as like a source of inspiration for me, but an outlet for others, too, to show their work. I'll post like my black and white little grid and then say, show me your favorite black and white photos. And I get the most response from that. And for me, I kind of like it because then I'm getting inspiration photographically from people that are interacting with me versus like, again, what meta decides I should be seeing for a week. There was a high visibility, low traffic, but now like the traffic's like up mm -hmm. there. I had a conversation with Peter McKinnon on there. So I feel, I feel cool. That's amazing. And you know what? That's where you can go reach out to all like the big time people is always when a social media platform first starts yeah. because they don't have much to do on there. You know, nothing's flooded for them there, so you can get them easily. Yeah, apparently Peter McKinnon's going on this kick now where he's only shooting film. And we're... we're for video or... No, no, like for stills. We're, oh, okay. we're in, in, we got into a, a refrigerator show-off contest. And I don't know if you've ever seen my, my film fridge before. Oh, my God. That's beautiful. This is where I insert the caption of... Uh, <clears throat> Decided to buy film instead of pro photo lights. <laughs> I thought you were going to say decided to buy film instead of food. <laughs> it's funny you mentioned that. So yeah, and, and I'm sure other p parts of the country do this, but it's pretty common in Texas. Do you have your refrigerator and then you have your garage refrigerator and people, you know, typically keep beer and stuff out there. I, I keep the overflow from, I have a, a, like one of those college fridges for those of you who can't see the picture, which is all of you. Mm -hmm. uh, but I have one of those college dorm refrigerators uh, full of film. And then my overflow uh, goes to my uh, garage fridge, which hopefully the power doesn't go out because that would suck. Uh, but overflow. <laughs> overflow. Can I can I buy film from you? That sounds like a nice stock you got there. Well, so I made I made the I made the decision because there were the rumors that Kodak was going to like double everything. This was like late 2021, and I was I was I was actually I wasn't actually saving up for Pro Photo. That, that was the second time I did this. The first time I did it, I was saving up for a 70 to 200 2.8, which I still don't own because I keep buying other because I'm very lazy about that. I, I, I 135 is the longest I usually shoot, but. I was like, oh, I need to get a 70 to 200 because I probably will find myself in a situation where I'm going to need it. And then I don't really feel like I don't like renting stuff. Mm -hmm. So I feel like I throw money away sometimes when I'm running. But I I was just about to buy one. And then I saw the thing with Kodak and I went out and I said, screw it. And I just bought so much film. And then like a month later, everything doubled in price. I was like, OK, Ooh. that was a good business good decision. Good investment. Now you could eBay it. And then and then it happened again. Uh, I was saving up for I was I was I was like, okay, I think I am going to make the switch to Profoto. And then it happened again. And I also wisely decided to buy film because now it's like some film that I bought for $35 a box is now selling for almost $70 a box for, for five, um, 120 medium format rolls. Wow. And I'm just like, gosh. And, but you know, I've tapped out on a uh, portrait 800. I can't, I, I, I refuse. I can afford, I can afford any film that's out there. It's just a matter of whether or not it's worth it to me. You don't shoot on film that often, right? I only do it for fun. And even like, you know, when I was learning film, my experience of it was fairly limited. It was like, you know, Tri-X and Plus X and Portra. And now shooting film again for fun for me, I started using like the Cine still. Yes. And um, somebody just showed me uh, one the other day. Stuff. Yeah, it's so fun. It's just fun to do. 
Um, somebody should, was it Ektar or something like that? Ektar is more of a yeah, landscape type. Yes. It's, it's a hue is very red. And yes. If you have like rust and stuff, it's really awesome for that. But for some skin tones. Probably like, not. <laughs> I mean, I, well, I'm more brave about it than Brandon is. I've shot some stuff. I've shot some portraits that I've had him go, that looks great. And I go, ha, it was on Ektar. <laughs> but if I'm having to like balance skin tones on film, especially on a 35 millimeter frame where it's like, there's no resolution. Like I'd, I'd rather just, you know, like feed goldfish or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> For sure. Oh, uh, so is Cine still your, your jam right now, Brandon? It is. Um, yeah, I shoot on 120 on a Mamiya 645 and their rolls are like 14 bucks, which is like a lot cheaper than buying Portra on 120. Oh, Portra is like $20 a roll well, right now. Portra is like 20 bucks, but it's like, you know, I'm a movie guy. You know, you shoot on the cine still, you've got instant movie. You've got like greens and blues bleeding into the skin tones and stuff like that. It's just gorgeous. I bought, I bought a uh, Fuji Pro, Pro 400H on closeout on Amazon. So, you know, like on Amazon, they have the subscribe and save. Yeah. Well, I knew that like, Fuji announced about a year ago that they were discontinuing Pro 400H, but Amazon was just like, hey, we'll take 15% off if you do the subscribe and save. And so I just had this thing where like every month I was just like, I'm going to buy three boxes. I'm just going to ignore that they're coming in every month. And I finally like ran out last month. So I have like 30 boxes of Pro 400H that have come in over the last year that I haven't even cracked into. They're in my little re reserve. That's actually what Peter McKinnon was commenting. He's like, oh my gosh, you have so much Pro 400H. I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm on Amazon right now. Those boxes that were like $49.99 are now $69.13. Uh, and this is why, this is why it was so hard to get into photography back in the day. And now the barrier to entry is much lower. Yeah. yeah. Unless but, you want to shoot film. <laughs> that does it for part one of the interview with Vanessa Joy. Uh, join us next week for part two of our interview where we're going to dive into a ton of photography related topics we greatly appreciate it you can follow us at f11pod.com you can check us out on instagram uh, you can check us out on twitter at f11pod uh, we may eventually get into threads we'll have to see how that goes down uh, but so far uh, you know hopefully they put twitter out of business maybe maybe not but uh, until next time chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.